Hey, Soakers. Last week, we introduced you to Marie Adler, an 18-year-old whose report of being raped was dismissed by law enforcement as a false report. We learned about similar attacks that took place three years later in a different state and introduced the detectives that would ultimately connect the cases and help identify the man who had viciously attacked many women over several years. Due to the sensitive nature of this case, listener discretion is strongly advised. Without reading her, her Miranda writes, the detectives told her to write out the true account of what happened. She's not arrested at this point, yep. but they're making her now write down the, quote, truth. They want her to give a retraction yes. from her allegation. So I'm actually going to read what she wrote directly from the book. And um, it's just going to, you know, it's just going to make us mad. But here we go. So she wrote, quote, I was talking to Jordan on the phone that night about his day and just about anything. After I got off the phone with him, I started thinking about all the things I was stressed out about and I was scared about living on my own. When I went to sleep, I dreamed that someone broke in and raped me. I have had a lot of stressful things going on and I wanted to hang out with someone and no one was able to. So I made up this story and didn't expect it to go as far as it did. It turned into this big thing. I don't know why I couldn't have done something different. This was never meant to happen. I mean, again, we have hindsight, but it seems very obvious to me hearing that, that she, that that's not true. She's spitballing, trying to come up with something to say to sort of make it go away. But Mason viewed the case as closed. Now, on that Friday, Marie called her project ladder manager and said that she wanted a lawyer. And Monday, August 18th, about a week since her report of being raped, Marie told a project ladder manager that she had signed the recant statement under duress just to get out of the station. So, that you know, she's talking to the manager. They're probably putting pressure on her saying, you know, why would you do this? Like, this right. is unacceptable. And then she says, no, I actually was telling the truth. And they kind of coerced they me, me into write this, this thing. Recap. And I just wanted to get out of there. And so then the manager turns around and says, you have to tell the police that they should really be looking for a rapist if this actually happened to you. Like, did this happen? And she says, yes. And so then she goes back to the station to recant her recant. Mason was out that day, but Rick Garden was there and recruited another detective to sit in with him. And of course, this did not particularly go well. No, not at all. Yeah, At this point, Rick Garden has no... He just looks at her as a liar. Availability in his mind to believe. Exactly. Exactly. It's like not even on his radar that this could possibly be true. And Marie says that she wants to take a polygraph to show that she's telling the truth. And Rick Garden warns her that if she takes the polygraph and fails, he could book her into jail. 
And so, of course, she decided not to take the test. Not that I would recommend taking a polygraph. Anyway, no. in her situation, yeah. absolutely not. No, no, no. But no. she did want to, and then she didn't want to when there was the threat of jail. Right. Now, Rick Garn also said that if she was lying, he would encourage Project Ladder to take away her housing. And again, she kind of retracts. This is her life and her yep. livelihood. So she says, no, uh, yep. she was lying. Now, in the two weeks after this, Marie quit her job, started getting harassed, lots of calls from people about why would you lie? Of course, the people that know her, yep. that know this has happened, want nothing to do with her because when you do lie, it makes it difficult for real victims. Yes. One of Marie's friends actually made a web page putting out her name and calling her a liar, which is kind of devastating. The police had actually not named her, but her friends had. And when Marie found out about the page, she kind of like completely broke down and trashed her apartment. The friend did take the page down, but obviously the relationship with Marie and the friend was over. I just like putting a public web page so awful like it's just yes so bad because especially in like modern time with the internet and stuff like you're putting someone's like safety at risk by naming them on the internet for something like exactly. that and then as if all of this is not devastating enough you know she's like quit her job and her friends are like land blasting her she's getting harassing phone calls her foster mom her former foster mom shannon told marie that she could still come over to their house they were all still very close but that shannon's husband thought it was best if she did not spend the night there anymore to avoid any false allegations toward him so it's clear that they don't believe her yes it's just kind of devastating and then as if all of that is not enough marie received a letter in the mail and we'll go into what was in the mail, but really it is just like one thing after another for Marie. And let's remember that she's 18 years old. Okay. Like she is barely an adult. Her brain is actually not fully developed. Like let's yes. be let's real. Just, just remember that. <laughs> So I'm going to go back into our background on our attacker. And he and his wife, Masha, remember, that's not her real name, had signed the lease on a two-bedroom house on July 24th, 2009 in Lakewood, Colorado. His mom and stepdad actually lived nearby and his sister did too. She worked out of Denver. He got a job at a gym and Masha got a job at Olive Garden. They had a dog and they were talking about having a baby. And he said that he went through cycles. Quote, there's when I'm normal and then when I'm the rape guy. Those are his own words. Ugh. Like, it's disgusting. I hate that. So he raped 65-year-old Doris on October 4th, 2009. He said that when she pled with him to get help, this really got under his skin and bothered him which is why he ended her attack earlier than he had planned. Masha started questioning him a lot about where he went late at night, and he started getting very annoyed with her. 
And he realized that this lifestyle that he was leading was more suited for someone who was single. And Masha tried to save their marriage, but she went on a trip and upon returning, he told her that he had cheated on her while she was gone. So she left him on April 16th, 2010. Now he enrolled in community college in the liberal arts program. And he was described as, quote, very smart, probably the best in his class. Melinda Wilding was a professor for Intro to Philosophy, where he credits this as the first time that he was able to start understanding the, quote, monster inside him. And Wilding said that he was a very eager student. And although he was older than most of the students in his class, he remained engaged in debates and conversations with them. The GI Bill allowed him to easily pay for school, and he also made money on the side by posting on a violent porn website where he would get a small commission whenever people would visit the site. On MySpace, he listed his job as pornographer. (laughs) No. It's really gross. And about a month after Masha left, he w- he started going on internet dating sites. And I want to read from his own dating profile site, the way that he described himself. And it says, you know, I was planning on staying in tonight and reading. I know, exciting. But I decided to peruse Craigslist and saw your post and thought it might be fun to have a couple of drinks. About me, I'm 32, six foot two and 220 pounds, divorced. Well-read, well-traveled, confident, funny, and a good conversationalist. Not expecting anything, just wanting to go out for a bit. Don't smoke, don't do drugs. I hate it. So he actually went on a date with a 32-year-old woman named Amy, who he met on OkCupid. And she described herself on her site as, quote, devious and twisted. And they didn't date very long. But they remained in contact, and he would refer to her as his friend in the dark. And can I just say, if you're describing yourself as devious and twisted on your OkCupid profile, you're probably not devious or twisted. You're probably not. (laughs) And so in October 2010, his brother Michael moved in with him to help pay the bills. And Michael describes his brother as smart as hell someone who didn't have any friends and someone who, quote, as far as normal society's way of thinking, he is way out there. Now, Detective Ellis told Detective Hendershot that she had photos of the footprints in the snow from the attempted robbery case in Lakewood. And there were four distinct shoe prints. There was also a glove print on the windowsill that had a honeycomb pattern on the palm. The footprints matched a pair of Adidas ZX700 mesh shoes. Hendershot now knew that the attempted robbery on July 6, 2010 was the same person who had raped Doris and Sarah. So they're able to match those shoe prints. Yes. And very specific type of shoe. Yes. Galbraith finally got Frank Tucker's phone records and he had been skiing in Vail when Amber had been raped. He also came in and showed the mark on his leg, which turned out to be a blue flame tattoo and not a birthmark. So that lead kind of fell off. Mm -hmm. And then VICAP didn't lead to any suspects, although they did think the Kansas and Colorado attacks were linked. 
They were able to get the license plate of a 1993 white Mazda truck. And when they searched the plates, they were presented with the name of a man, which we will get to later. Yeah. Big lead. Back in 2008 in Linwood, Washington, the letter that Marie received in the mail was a non-traffic citation for false reporting, which is considered a gross misdemeanor, the most serious charge under a felony, and could face up to a year in jail. So she needed to enter a plea. And remember, she is 18 years old. She does not know anything about the court system. She obviously doesn't have money to hire like a fancy lawyer. She doesn't have a family attorney. So she didn't show up for her arraignment, which prompted the prosecutor to issue a warrant for her arrest, which he did. Now, she showed up at court the next day, and she didn't even know that the hearing had been scheduled for the previous day and that there had been a warrant out for her arrest because they had sent all of this information to the wrong address. Oh, my gosh. They messed up and then decided to, like, have an arrest warrant for her. Like, oh, my God. So because of their mistake, the court rescheduled the arraignment and canceled her arrest warrant. Like, how kind of them, you know? The arraignment was held on September 25th, and she pled not guilty. And her next court date was scheduled for November 10th. On October 6th, that same year, 2008, a 63-year-old grandmother in Kirkland, Washington, reported a sexual assault. She woke up to a man straddling her with a black mask on his face. He groped her and took pictures. She said that he had, quote, white, white skin, but that she could not determine his age. She said he could have been anywhere between 15 or 40 years old. Two detectives were assigned to her case, Jack Keese and Audrey Weber. They were both struck by how cruel this type of attack was and about how these types of things did not really happen in Kirkland. The woman said that for the last two to three months, she felt like someone had been watching her. Now, Shannon, Marie's former foster mom, saw this story on the news and thought, oh my God, I was wrong. Marie really had been raped. So Shannon called Marie and told her about the news story in Kirkland, Mm -hmm. and Marie researched about it and cried. And I cannot even begin to imagine all of the feelings that Marie has at this point. Oh, my gosh. Obviously, there's going to be some guilt. You're going to think that it's your fault because you didn't pursue. But you know what? It is not her fault. It is not her fault. Even if the police had believed her, which it's definitely not her fault that they didn't. Yep. They very well probably would not have found this person and he would have continued to assault other people. I think it's really devastating that we do kind of put that on women where it's like, well, you should report because he's going to do it to other people. But look what happens when you report for crying out loud. Oh, my God. And I'm not going to fault anybody for not reporting after this case and so many other cases that we've seen where the police mishandle it and just completely browbeat the victim. Yep. In November, Marie went to court. Her public defender told the judge that the defense had no pretrial motions. Marie was told to come back in December, and her case was pushed from December to January, January to February, and February to March. 
this does tend to happen like pushing the it off. court system come back next month come back next there's month. no urgency right we see yeah. it with the big cases but yeah i think this goes to show that even little things like this gross misdemeanor yes the cases do get pushed the prosecution ended up making her an offer if she met conditions like seeking mental health therapy supervised probation and a $500 fine and no further rule breaking, her charges would be dropped after a year. And she was all about that because the entire time she's just been wanting this to go away yes. so that she can do some kind of normal life. Healing? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So she she took it. Detective Keese looked into the grandmother attack in Kirkland and they found a suspect who had a criminal sheet with a sex offense but the small amount of DNA found on the victim did not belong to him. And on September 2nd, the case was listed as an active. And in the meantime, Marie stopped going to church, became uninterested in her photography hobby, put aside thoughts of going to college, kind of spirals a little bit. She starts smoking, drinking, making unhealthy choices, which is truthfully understandable. Yes. And in her court appointed therapy, she was diagnosed with depression and PTSD. And like, I think that we see this quite a bit with any victim of sexual assault where, especially if they're not being believed, making those, you know, what we would consider unhealthy choices, they're really just coping mechanisms for these victims. And I feel like the book kind of makes a big deal about how she changed her appearance and like she started eating unhealthy and started putting on weight and making, you know, drug choices and hanging out with a bad crowd. And I feel like that's very, very, very normal. I think that most people would try and do something to gain some feeling of control. Absolutely. You know, and that's even if they're being believed. Like this is just even worse. Exactly. And to have the people who are closest to you yes. have been partially responsible for driving this and, you know, they don't believe you. Yes. Ugh. So I'm back in 2011 where Detective Galbraith is able to find the name of the person who owns the truck. She found the name Mark Patrick O'Leary and he was the owner of a 1993 white Mazda truck. He was 32 years old, white, blonde, and just over six feet. Galbraith looked into him and thought, that's him. He had no criminal record, not even a parking ticket. So Galbraith enlisted the help of her cop husband, David, to search the internet for anything related to Mark O'Leary. David got a hit on the site teensexhub.net. And that site was registered under Mark's name. O'Leary had been honorably discharged from the military. Now, on the same day that they found his name, two FBI agents staked out his house. At 12.13 p.m., O'Leary and a woman stepped out of his house. They went to lunch. The FBI agents went and talked to the busboy after, and he pointed to a mug that O'Leary had been using. Now, this is called abandoned DNA. So abandoned DNA that's left out in the open, law enforcement can gather that without breaking the Fourth Amendment. So that's any cups, any tissues that you might throw away, abandoned DNA. So 
FBI agent Gressing, meanwhile, was trying to install a surveillance camera and wanted to make sure that no one was in the O'Leary home. But when he knocked, Mark answered. So Gressing explained that they were cops and they showed him a police sketch of a suspected burglar and asked if he had seen the guy. The next day, on February 12th, Galbraith got the DNA results. O'Leary's mug DNA matched those that were found on the victim. They also knew that Mark's brother, Michael, lived with him and that the two looked very similar. So they started thinking that maybe the two brothers were working together and that they had two suspects. And that's actually, it poses a problem to them too, because if they prosecute against the wrong person or, you know, if there's there's totally reasonable doubt, right? If they like go for the one yes. brother and then they can say, oh, it's yep. the other one. It becomes a totally tricky situation for sure. Yes. So they didn't have enough to bring a case and then they had this other complication and they really needed more evidence. So Galbraith wrote an affidavit to the judge for a search warrant. And she wrote specifically that they were looking for items that had been taken from the victim's homes, bedding, pajamas, underwear, camera, The judge signed at 10 p.m. and the raid was set for the next morning at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday, February 13th. They raided his home. Galbraith patted him down, asked him to pull up his pant legs. They found the birthmark on his left calf and she gave Grusing the thumbs up. This was their guy. His first court appearance was on February 14th. He was charged with sexual assault, kidnapping, burglary, and menacing. And his bail was set at $5 million. Now, while they were searching his home, they noticed that everything was very neat and orderly, and they found a pair of Adidas ZX 700 shoes. In the bathroom hamper, they found a black mask, and in the kitchen, they found gloves with the honeycomb palm pattern. So just overwhelming amounts of evidence. They found a handgun under his mattress. In the computer room closet, they found a backpack containing Ziploc bags labeled stockings, clamps dildo gag and they found 10 pairs of women's underwear again i mean it's just it is absurd the amount of evidence that they find like so so much even the detectives that were there said you know usually you might find something here and there but this was just a mountain of evidence in his home just everywhere everywhere so galbraith contacted amber and told her that due to her memory and details she had given They were able to apprehend the man that had raped her 39 days prior. And again, I just, Amber, (laughs) wow, she is. She is amazing. Yep. Very impressive. Hendershot met with Sarah and told them that they had their guy and they both cried. Now, Michael O'Leary arrived to his house swarming with cops, and he had no idea what was happening. He was handcuffed and placed in a squad car. And when detectives told him the charges against Mark, his response was, this is going to kill our mom. And whenever they're asking him about his brother, he says, the dude's fucking psycho. Like, dang. So, well, again, if you're having these (laughs) feelings at age five, you've probably exhibited them in front of your brother from time to time. Right. So I'm sure that at some level... The brother knew that he's not completely normal, even though he is leading this false life. And, yes, you know, I'm not saying that the brother should have known or anything no, like that. No, but no, there no. were signs that something was up. Something is not quite right there. John Evans was a 50 year old computer expert, and he was tasked with going through O'Leary's computers, hard drives and phones. 
And, you know, they knew that the assailant had taken pictures of the victims and they really wanted that. They did have all this evidence, but a lot of it is still circumstantial and an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence. So they're probably going to get a conviction, but they really did want that to tie them specifically into the victims. O'Leary had attempted to hide the photos using various computer firewall type of software, but Evans was able to crack it and find the photos of the victims. And while looking through the photos, they discovered pictures of another young woman. Galbraith wasn't sure how they were going to find her. The last pic O'Leary had taken of her was of her learner's permit, which he had placed on her torso. It showed her name and address, which was in Linwood, Washington. That's where we're connecting our two timelines. That's where we're connecting our story of Marie, because that was her learner's permit. And those were her photos. On August 11th, 2008, in Linwood, Washington, Mark said that he had been watching Marie for weeks. He broke into her place, raped her, and took pictures. And when he left, he told her he was sorry. On August 14th, 2008, while Marie was being interrogated by police in Linwood, Mark O'Leary was buying four boxes of ammo and a rifle. In the summer of 2009, he decided to settle outside of Denver and start anew. So in March 2011 in Linwood, Galbraith obtained Marie's records and she saw that Marie had been charged with false reporting. Sergeant Mason was heading into work when he received the call that there was photographic evidence that Marie had been telling the truth originally. And he thought about where he had gone wrong in the investigation and he even wondered if it was time for him to quit doing police work. There's no statistical data on how many women are accused of false reporting only for it to be proven true later, but I assume that it happens. This can't be the only time that this has happened. And that's not even counting how many women are pressured into dropping the case and recanting officially like she was, and then nothing happens, nothing gets pursued. So that 2 to 8% false allegation could be even significantly lower. Yes. So Marie was now 20 years old and she was almost 21 and living in Powallop. She drifted between retail jobs and she really felt unsettled. Now, Sergeant Mason called her and said that he needed to talk to her. So she immediately thought that she had missed a court date or something and that there was another warrant out for her arrest because they had messed up so badly the first time. Uh, And she must have just been devastated to hear Oh, my God. From them. Like, yes. she thinks that this is behind yes. her. This is years later. Yes. Ugh. So Mason met with her and told her that now they knew that she had been telling the truth originally. And they handed her a check for $500 to reimburse the charge that she had to pay at the court. So right after Mason told her that they realized she had been telling the truth, she called Shannon and told her, now they know I was telling the truth. And Shannon felt all types of feelings all at once. She felt guilty. She felt relieved. She felt so many different things. And Marie forgave Shannon for not believing her. And to me, that speaks quite a bit to her character because I do not know how hard that must have been or if I would be able to do the same thing. But she Absolutely. forgave her. I read an article that's kind of the years later with her uh-huh. where they're interviewing her. And 
just so everyone knows, Marie Adler is not the name that she actually goes by. Mm -hmm. Marie is her real middle name, but that ultimately is a false name because she doesn't want to be harassed or found. She chooses to, to move on past this. But she was talking about how she did forge this relationship with both of the foster mothers and how she even like pre-screened the show for them and then contacted them and was like, you know, you're not villains. Like go ahead and watch the show. And I just, oh, that one, it just, it gets me when I think about that and their entire relationship. Yep. Marie also called her former Project Ladder leaders. She called Jordan. She called Peggy. She was telling everybody, like, they know now that I was telling the truth. Now, Marie told the Linwood Police Department that she wanted an apology, not from the department as a whole, but from the specific detectives who had not believed her. Now, she never heard from Ritgarn, who now worked as a PI in Southern California. But Sergeant Mason did apologize to her, and she said that during his apology, he seemed like, quote, a lost puppy, and that he really did feel bad. And she said that this apology did help her to move on a little bit. And, you know, he he does seem very remorseful and apologetic, but I'm glad that he feels bad because he deserves to feel bad. He should feel bad. And that should serve as an example for any other police officer in a similar situation. Yes. To not jump to conclusions, to take your doubts and your hunches as one part of a huge whole and to investigate thoroughly and not let your preconceived notions and your opinions and your hunches dictate the investigation to the point to where you miss big chunks of information. Yep. Now, O'Leary's trial was set for October of 2011, and his public defendant told the judge that his client wanted to plead guilty and get it over with. Galbraith and Hendershot read victim statements from Amber and Sarah in court, and the statements were about how the rapes had impacted their lives. Very emotional. O'Leary took the stand and said, I'm standing here because I need to be in prison. I'm a violent sexual predator and I am out of control. Now, Mark's mother believed he was guilty, but she said that he never acted odd as a child. They never noticed anything suspicious. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe he never did show any signs. Maybe he was really good at leading the double life. He probably showed little red flags, but I think as a mother, it would be easy to overlook Uh, them unless they were really big, huge. Right. Like you can attribute small incidents to he's a boy growing up. He's, you know, he he was someone who wanted to join the military when he was in his 20s. And I think that coming from a military family, like it takes a specific type of person to enroll in the military. And sometimes you when you're growing up, like you process things differently. So it could have been that. It could have been yeah. a lot of different little things. Exactly. O'Leary was sentenced to 300 27 and a half years in prison. He would never get out. Thank goodness that they gave him the maximum amount of years that they could give him. The judge really talked about how evil he was and how he just lost all of his rights to be in a free society because he was just that bad. Yeah. He's really creepy to me. There is something about 
having victims all over the map that's very unsettling. Not that any other situation where somebody's just targeting women of a certain type is good, obviously. But it's just like, you're just doing this yeah, because you're pure evil. Yeah. Like, and they like they were never able to pin all of the University of Kansas attacks on him. As far as I know, they haven't ever been to trial with any of those or found, you know, found a perpetrator for that. But I believe he could have done it. Mm -hmm. You know, there the similarities are a little bit too close for me to think that it would be somebody else. And so if you account for that, we're talking like three, four states of having victims living in three or four different states. It's crazy. Now, Sergeant Mason did not end up quitting the force. He said that his experience would teach him how to be a better investigator, which hopefully it did. Yeah, I hope so. Marie settled with the department for $25,000, which is... A very small amount of money. (laughs) Yes. I think that her lawyer asked for more, but because the city had to end up paying and not the police department, it ended up being less than, like she ended up receiving less than they had asked for because of something with the city having to foot the bill. And I'm sure that she just really wanted. Yes. The acknowledgement and just and no amount of money is going to make it right. You know, you could pay her forty billion dollars and it still wouldn't be right. Now, the authors of the book interviewed Marie in 2015, and she was married. She was pregnant with her second child, so she was able to move forward in life. She has a a good life, and I'm so happy that she was able to come through all of this, and even just through like what she experienced as a child. Yeah, I find her. Very resilient. Yes. In the fall of 2016, Marie called Galbraith and thanked her for all of her work and for allowing her to move on with her life. And, you know, this is someone that she never met. But just knowing how hard those detectives worked and to receive that call, I imagine, was like the best feeling ever. Because you don't tend to get that sort of remark from someone that you've worked on a case for, but like, you've never met them. They don't know you, you know? And I just thought that that was a really beautiful moment. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. So I kind of want to talk about a couple of things regarding this case. I want to talk about the police work in this case. We see kind of exceptional extremes here, in my opinion. We see some of the hardest working detective work that I've read about. These detectives, Galbraith and Hendershot and their whole team, worked tirelessly. They were putting their personal lives on hold. They were doing all sorts of things to find this man. And they, you know, they're looking at security footage. They're looking at all kinds of stuff. They're trying to connect cases that if they hadn't been working so hard would not have been connected. If they hadn't communicated between departments and between cities, who knows what would have happened? 
So I feel like we're seeing some exceptionally wonderful police work. And then at the same time, we're seeing exceptionally disappointing police work. Yes. Like so disappointing because of all of these preconceived notions, all of these snap judgments, all of these things that you are taught to not put into practice came in the way of them believing a very true victim. And like, it boggles my mind that we can have such good and such bad police work all within this one case. Yes. And unfortunately, so often it's the exceptional police work that is the rare. Yes. And the other is what we see. And, you know, we, we didn't, start this podcast to harp on police officers and complain about them no no no. we're gonna acknowledge the good when we see it and these two female detectives and really the entire team that they have yes again do an excellent job but you know this is happening this happens and it needs to be handled better yep women are not coming forward because we've all heard these stories we've all seen it happen and we when put in this situation we don't want to deal with that yeah and like what a privilege to be able to say I don't really want to think about that I don't want that to be real you know exactly that's not true that's not true I also you know like leading into that I wonder with kind of this surge of the me too movement and things like that would it make a difference now I don't know I want to believe that we as a society, believe women more. But then I think about what's his name on the Supreme Court? Like what, you know what I mean? Like all of this stuff that has happened in modern times, like I want to believe that it's gotten better, but I don't really think it has, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, am sometimes often guilty of reading the comments Oh, no. Yes. And I was reading the comments on uh, one of the articles that came out about the Chris Noth allegations, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, the yeah, guy yeah, yeah. from Sex and the from City. Sex, yeah. And just so many, so many of the comments were like, these women are just out to get famous or rich, which they're not um, like, I don't know their names. You know, yeah, they're not. Yeah. But I know who Chris Noth is and like, but anybody who, you know, with a celebrity saying like, oh, they would never do that. I'm right. sorry. Like, you don't you know don't them. You don't know them. Like, what? They would never Ugh. do that because they played this character on TV and like, that's not even getting into his character on that right. show <laughs> who is a piece of shit. Like, exactly. sorry. But no. yeah, it just, I wish that I could say it's gotten better, but I can't. And, you know, I, I think that for us working on this podcast like bringing to light cases like this is like part of why we do what we do you know and like having the passion for it and I'm glad that they made this into a show on Netflix and they really they followed the story so well and a lot of the victims names in the show are not changed Um, A couple like the detective's names are changed. The perpetrator's name has changed. Lots of name changes, but everything else is accurate to the story. Um, The authors of the book did a wonderful job in their research and putting things together. And I really like, I really recommend the show. It is. It's really good. And very good. 
Marie has come out and said that the show is very good, very accurate. Good. She approves of the interpretation. Um, she said in particular the scene where she recants yeah. for the first time. Yep. Struck very close to the way that she experienced that. And so I think that that's also really impressive. The show is so good. It's so good. It's only eight episodes. It's a limited series. It is not easy. Like, again, you know, I think the the trigger warnings count for the show, too. Um, there are parts yeah. where you might want to look away. Um, I watched the first episode in the airport and I was like holding my phone down because I was like, I don't, I feel weird like watching yes. this around other people. I, yeah, you know? I will say that if if you find that content very sensitive or if, if you have trouble watching yeah. depictions of sexual assault, you shouldn't tread lightly. It's, yeah. The show is done very well. Yes. And I don't think that there's anything gratuitous, but I would tread lightly. It's very, uh, you, you could have upsetting. a very visceral reaction. Yes. Like it, it is definitely, it's a great show though. It's definitely worth a watch. So th I know that case is <laughs> really, really heavy. But I want to go into self-care and prepare because I think we all need a little bit of that right now. And so my self-care tip is the Aztec Healing Clay Mask. So I had seen this, you know, it became popular on like BuzzFeed. It's popular on TikTok. I'm pretty wary of lots of skincare face products because I have very sensitive skin. And I'm acne prone. But the Aztec Healing Clay Mask is pretty nice. It's pretty mild. Um, I mix mine with vinegar, like apple cider vinegar. You can mix it with water. But they recommend that if your skin dries out easily to uh, use the vinegar instead. You've used it before, right? I have used it. My husband loves it. He uses it all the time. And I will say I have the most sensitive baby skin. I'm yes, allergic baby to skin. literally everything. Yes. And I was terrified to use it. Right. But it's scary. I used it and I had no reaction to it. Yeah. And I did look into it. The you do want to use the vinegar. And I thought that that sounded crazy to me because I would never put apple cider vinegar like right. all over my skin. Like, <laughs> right. I've literally used apple cider vinegar to remove a mole from my skin before. So <laughs> right. I was like, no. But because it's like very acidic and the yes. mask is very alkaline, it actually balances out or... Yeah. You know. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something along it those lines. Of, I remember reading about it like and I was like, oh, you, this actually makes sense. When you pour the vinegar into the mixture, um, you're not supposed to mix it with metals. So like I bought the kit that came with a little mixing bowl and a tool to mix it. Um, it does bubble when they come into contact with each other. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to put something bubbling on my face. But it really is nice to use. Um, mm -hmm. they, I think they recommend like a once a week use to start and see how your skin reacts. Yeah. You can always do a skin test on, you know, a part of your body that's not your face. But they recommend that you can also use it on like your feet and other like dry areas of your body. Um, and it's only like $10. So it really is um, worth the price if you're willing to try something new for your yes. skin. And we'll link it in the show notes and obviously follow the directions. And yes. And don't leave it on for 30 minutes when it says only 10 minutes. Like really yeah. do. I think I started with five the first yeah. time. I was very careful as well. And so for my prepare tip, I really thought about this because like I 
my main prepare tip is to believe women. And along with that, that whole like, just because someone isn't reacting to anything in a way that you think is normal doesn't take away from their experience or what they're feeling. Like I am a highly sensitive, emotional, empathetic person. And I don't expect everyone else to react the same way that I do. I don't think that makes you less of a kind person if you don't react in the same way that I do. I know that some people think I overreact just because I have like a lot of feelings, you know, (laughs) but just for anything... Yeah. Realizing that people react to things differently and people display emotions differently from you is a huge step in forming healthy adult relationships. And you just so, really never know. I'm very emotional. Like I do I cry very easily. Yeah. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But if I'm in a traumatic situation or if I'm grieving, yeah. I yeah. shut down. Yeah. And I guess that's just the way that I deal with right you know but I would never I would never expect you to be like okay you have to like you have to cry this amount of times you have to like talk about your feelings just like I do you have to do all these things like just valuing that people react to things differently and that one way isn't better than another it's just that we're different exactly and just keeping that in mind and if you are in law enforcement or something like that listening to your victims, listening to women, believing women, all of those things. But even us that are not in law enforcement, we can do those things too. Okay, Soakers, I know that was heavy, but we're going to leave it here for today. So tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. for some Bath and Body Parts merch? Snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.